Welcome nerds. It's time to debrief you on the world of pop culture. Loading up rockabilly track. Now claiming the high ground. Preparing updates on movies, TV, wrestling and more. ANS 5.0 activates in 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the Amazing Nerd Show. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, this is Damon. And this is the Amazing Nerd Show. All right, on this week's podcast, we're going to be breaking down the finale of Obi-Wan and Episode 3 of Miss Marvel. Plus, we got a preview for AEW's Forbidden Door. All right, but before we move on, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, give us a five-star review and DM us a screenshot. Not only will we read it on the show, but we'll send you some Amazing Nerd Show swag. Let's get into the news. Every week we collect the biggest headlines and rumors of nerdum. We're not mild-mannered reporters, we're mere podcasters with opinions. Alright, up first we got something from the Star Wars rumor mill. It looks like we might be getting a Jedi Fallen Order live action series from Disney+. Plus. There have been claims this past week from Star Wars insider Christian Harloff of you know Star Wars News Net that Disney might actually be interested in bringing Cal Kestis from Jedi Fallen Order to the small screen. The report stated that Cameron Monaghan, who plays Cal in the game, is already signed on for the project. This series would be following the story after whatever happens in Jedi Survivor, the sequel to the first game, as a prequel wouldn't make much sense from what we know of his story. Personally, I enjoy the character, but I'm not sure he needs a show outside the games right now. Him working along with others during this time period would be interesting to see, maybe more as a cameo in my eyes, but as for now, we don't know where his story is necessarily going until probably after this sequel game releases sometime in 2023. Now, wait a second, Christian. Now, are you assuming that this is going to be a sequel to whatever happens in Jedi Survivor? Could this possibly be just a remake of what happens in Jedi Fallen Order? I would assume that they're because they put so much emphasis on the Jedi Fallen Order game being um, canon. You know, and they and they brought elements from that to the uh, other shows and stuff like that. But you're right. I mean, they could just be remaking it for a live action audience, you know, that people that haven't played the game. I'm just wondering, since it was such a popular story that they wouldn't want to bring it to us, you know, in live action form. For Star Wars fans who aren't necessarily gamers, like I went back and I watched basically a compilation video of the story from the video game because it was getting such rave reviews. Um, and I thought it was great, but I also kind of wished it was an actual like movie or series afterwards because I saw a lot of potential in it. Um, but, you know, do you feel like it's just too soon for that since it just came out in 2019? Like, is there enough meat on the bone, you know, where you can kind of flesh out the story in a, a film or a series? Because it's supposed to be a series right now, a film. Mm-hmm. That's the rumor, at least. Um, or do you feel like it's better that they just go right into a sequel, you know, which is going to be a sequel to the sequel? So it'll actually be the third chapter of uh, Kel Kestis, uh Is that how you say his name? Yeah. Uh, you know, his story. Yeah, it came out in like 2019, but it's, so it's still so fresh in my mind. But I think there's a lot of space there between Cal and like the crew that he works with that they kind of like, you know, it's video. It's like an open world video game experience. So they're kind of like you know the passage of time isn't all there like the way that they wrote the game so it's like 
you go on one planet, they just meet, you go to the next planet and they're like, oh, we're best friends already. So I feel like there's a little bit more that they could do with character development with the side characters and stuff like that, that might you know, make it a little bit more interesting as a show to watch. But I mean, the story is relatively short and I feel like it could fit in at least a season or two if they wanted to do it that way. I also think it's a case of like, because this is so fresh and the fact that they used like so many actors and people with recognizable faces, that like, do they just pull all those same people and bring them back for the actual show? Are they going to recast that? You know, I that's also an element they have to think about. But there's so many cool characters from this that I do think would be interesting to explore more in a live action sense. Like his master, uh, Jaro Tapal, seems like this absolute powerful Jedi. And I'm like, where was he during like the Clone Wars and all this stuff that we didn't get to see before this game? I don't know. It should be interesting. I could see them kind of backing away from doing something like that too just because you know out of fear from backlash since you know the the game has so many fans mm-hmm. um if they didn't necessarily get the story right i could see just a huge uproar especially since it's so brand new um you know and maybe they're better off just kind of you know telling you know a sequel story um, you know, of an older, you know, Kel Kestis. But that would, of course, mean then that you would have to wait for the second game to come out, right? When's the second game scheduled to come out? Uh, 2023. Okay, so it's not too far away. Yeah. You know, where they could actually be in production, at least. You know, if this rumor's true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I guess we'll just have to wait and see. So up next, we have more Star Wars rumors with the report that Millie Bobby Brown is in talks with Disney for a Star Wars film role. This Stranger Things star could be going from telekinesis to the force as Millie Bobby Brown has been apparently having some secret talks with Disney, according to reports from Mirror. This rumor claims that Millie is interested in either a film role or a lead role in one of the upcoming Disney Plus series, because who isn't? I would be interested in a lead role. (laughs) I'm kidding. The report also went on to talk about how Disney is looking to simply mold an important role around her, you know, claiming that her stardom from the Stranger Things series is simply enough to get her the job, which makes the rumor a bit questionable in my opinion. I'd hope that they would, you know, at least have an idea of a character before bringing someone in, but you never know nowadays. Yeah, I mean, the the rumor does sound a little strange, no pun intended, just because, I mean, Star Wars sells itself, so I don't feel like you need a big star attached. I mean, honestly, like, in my mind, Star Wars makes stars. Right. Yes. But I do remember a couple years back, there was a rumor floating around that Millie Bobby Brown was being considered uh, for a role playing like a younger like Princess Leia. But now that, you know, I I think she's like 18, 19 years old, she'd actually be the same age that Carrie Fisher was in A A New Hope. So that doesn't really work anymore. Right. Um, No. So I don't know. I mean, they have so many different projects like on the docket right now. I mean, there's so many different avenues they could go you know, with, you know, a great actress like Millie Bobby Brown. Um, You know, it's hard to even speculate like what project she could be possibly attached to. I just hope if this is true, it doesn't become a trend of, oh, we need bigger stars and bigger names in our shows to, you know, continue to create this. Like, I, I, 
I think they can be make stories and figure out the right people for it. Yeah, no, I mean, Star Wars, in my mind, is above that, so. Exactly. I mean, they've casted known actors in the past, like Oscar Isaac, but they casted him not because of his star power, you know, just because he's an awesome actor. Is it sad that my mind went to Moon Knight before it went to Poe Dameron, even though we're talking about Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> We also got some quick Marvel updates as, you know, Kevin Feige has been teasing the next big phase in the MCU. Collider reported on some comments made by Feige recently of him stating that, you know, phase four is nearing its end and that people will start to see where the next saga is going soon. And with Comic-Con and this year's D23, Marvel is suspected to release a phase five slate. So we'll see if that comes true, if we're going to learn about any new releases in the upcoming years. So obviously it's a very slow news week where we have a story about a possible story <laughs> in the future because <laughs> it's like obviously there's going to be some kind of marvel announcement at one of the big you know cons i believe san diego comic-con is coming up and then we've got d23 like you said mm -hmm. so i mean they always make some kind of announcement um i don't know how big of an announcement it's going to be but i don't know it just it just sounds like the news outlets were stretching and really searching for news this week. So and I guess so are we because of that. Um, also, on the Marvel front, there is a rumor floating around that uh, Kristen Ritter uh, is in talks with Marvel to reprise her role as Jessica Jones. Uh, this is coming apparently from Daniel RPK's Patreon account. So take it with a grain of salt. I mean, he has broken stories in the past, and this is a rumor that's been floating around for quite a while, especially with Daredevil showing up in Spider-Man recently, and then Wilson Fisk in uh, the Hawkeye series. So, I mean, there seems to be this huge Netflix, you know, Marvel revival going on, which I, I absolutely welcome. But yeah, I mean, we even talked about like how it would make sense for Jessica Jones to pop up in the She-Hulk series, especially with that being like a courtroom, you know, comedy deal. And, uh, you know, Daredevil is also supposed to be rumored to be in that. So it just kind of would make sense that you'd have like, you know, Jessica Jones as a private investigator, you know, possibly, you know, help She-Hulk on a case. Uh, but we could be completely off. <laughs> uh, she could also be part of the Echo series for that matter, which also has, you know, Daredevil rumor wise attached at this point. I mean, fuck it. Just put them in all, you know, just, <laughs> just put everyone in every show at this point. <laughs> Well, that's kind of what's happening, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's the Marvel Universe. You could have all these tons of crossovers, and that's kind of what makes it fun. So, I mean, Jessica's such a great character. Um, like, I don't know if we'll ever see, like, a new Jessica Jones series on Disney+, Plus, since they tend to keep things PG-13 over there. Uh, but, I mean, there are, you know, talks that, you know, Deadpool 3 is going to be rated R, so maybe, you know, they kind of loosen, you know, their restrictions up, and, you know, they allow some, you know, rated R content you know, on their, you know, streaming service. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But it just, Jessica Jones, PG-13 just doesn't sound right to me. I feel like it would almost <laughs> like water down the character. Um, but I mean, maybe there's a way that they can do it that, you know, makes sense. I mean, I guess she is a strong enough character where I feel like her stories would still resonate, even if they were handcuffed a little. But no, you, you made the point I wanted to make exactly. With Deadpool 3 on the horizon, I feel like there's a future in Marvel where they can have like a separate division of maybe exactly. a little bit more raunchy content. I mean, that's where those comic books really started off was uh, Marvel mm -hmm. Max and Marvel Knights. So even in the comic book universe, I mean, they had a separate line to tell those stories in. So maybe we get something similar, you know, in the MCU where it's a separate, you know, line of shows and films 
that are they're basically Marvel After Dark, you know, which sounds dirty, but you know, I mean, it's basically Marvel Knights. I think it would really allow Marvel to kind of stretch their wings and you know tell those grittier stories um, for a more adult audience. Now, I know I completely no sold the Kevin Foggy story. You know, it's it's not news, but. Do you think we possibly get like the announcement of the next event film, um, you know, at D23 or one of the cons this year? Or do you think he holds off until next year? Because it does still feel a little too early. I feel like there could be a major crossover event where maybe it's not like the level of Avengers, but maybe they do another kind of like big film somewhere around the size of a multiverse of madness. Where it's kind of like a precursor to like an Infinity War or whatnot. Of Civil War, yeah, yes. I could see that. That That's a possibility. I just don't feel like they're going to announce mm -hmm. like Secret Wars, you know, this summer. No, no. Because so I, <laughs> I feel like that's still like two to three years down the line at least. Because it does feel weird you know with how marvel used to structure it with like each phase there was an avengers film and now like it i don't even this one's not really ending with a like big event yeah you don't have like that tentpole like film mm -hmm. where like all these like newly introduced you know characters get to kind of cross over so you're right it is a little different so or maybe he does announce another avengers film i mean who knows uh but i could see it being more of a, a crossover film somehow i just i think they're almost running out of events at this point because <laughs> we have the secret invasion series right mm -hmm. uh and then we know that they're probably gonna do secret wars but that's down the line uh so god i i really happy to like take a deep dive into my nerdum to figure out uh, the the next like event that would be kind of a smaller event that they could tell mm -hmm. i mean they could do civil war too but who wants to see that no <laughs> <laughs> please don't uh you know i mean marvel comics has a litany of events that's taken place throughout the years you know to choose from so they could go in so many different directions who knows all right, Christian, the time has finally arrived. Let's go ahead and break down the finale of Obi-Wan. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for the Obi-Wan Kenobi series ahead. You have been warned. Have you come to destroy me, Obi-Wan? I will do what I must. Then you will die. We open up the season finale on Tatooine as an injured Reva makes herself you know, known to a water merchant after giving Obi-Wan's old foreman a dose of real power after he skips the line. Reva indeed follows the trail to Luke after seeing Organa's message last week as she interrogates the merchant on where Owen is. So Christian, what exactly are her motives here? Is this to get vengeance against Vader? Like, did she put the pieces together and figured out that, you know, whoever is on Tatooine must be Vader's kid? Or is this more about just lashing out and trying to hurt Obi-Wan uh, because of her failure? Knowing that, you know, he's obviously trying to protect someone on Tatooine. Well, I feel like her rage and her you know, need for vengeance is all focused on Vader. So when I put that with, like, her finding out about children on Tatooine, I'm assuming she's thinking I'm killing Vader's child. I 
but but the message she saw doesn't really give that much information to really put that together. So I don't because it's not like Organa in the message says, you know, Skywalker, right? No, at least the version she heard. He he didn't say that. All right. I, I just want to make sure I'm not missing anything. So, um, so she's making a huge assumption mm -hmm. here because <laughs> that's kind of how I took it. But I recently rewatched the episode. So I was like, wait, how does she know that the kid belongs to Anakin? Unless she doesn't, and like I said, she's just kind of a wounded animal now, and she's just lashing out and wants to hurt somebody. Um, but yeah, no, I took it at first as like, oh, I'm going after, you know, you know, uh, Anakin's child. Meanwhile, somewhere else in the galaxy, Obi-Wan and the Path are being heavily fired upon by Vader's Star Destroyer. As we find out last episode, the hyperdrive on the ship is damaged, but Roken continues to try and keep everyone calm, giving them slightly false updates on their ability to escape. Obi-Wan, knowing the dire situation they are in, looks across, you know, all the scared passengers and sees Leia fearlessly amongst them, you know, trying to help the other kids remain calm with her droid Lola. Yeah, this definitely seems like the moment where Obi-Wan realizes what he needs to do. I think one of my overall big critiques for the entire series is like there's too many moments like this one where they're asking the audience to kind of do the math themselves and connect the yes. dots. If that mm -hmm. makes sense, where they're just, you know, they're just relying a little too much on you to do the legwork for them, where you're kind of like having to like delve into your own kind of headcanon <laughs> to fill in the blanks. Uh -huh. uh, so I don't know. It, it feels a little lazy. Back on Tatooine, Owen is with Luke in town shopping for some parts when the water merchant shows up out of nowhere and warns him of Reva. Owen hurries home with Luke where he then explains the Empire is coming for their boy to Beru who is more than ready to fight as we learn that they had planned for this to actually happen as Beru was quick to bring out the rifles to protect her son. Holy shit, who knew Beru had a little uh, Sarah Connor in her? Like, she was ready, like, for this moment. Uh, too bad she didn't keep that spirit ten years from now, huh? <laughs> you don't know. She could have gone down fighting. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we never really saw it, right? Maybe that's why they were forced to burn them alive. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, getting to know them a little more in this series makes that moment carry a lot more weight in A New Hope. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it feels like Luke should also mourn a little more. Right. <laughs> I'm on an adventure now. Yeah, like, all right. <laughs> I'm a space pirate. Let me just look at the dirt for a little bit, and we're good. Uh. <laughs> but back in space, Obi-Wan faces a tough crowd when he decides to face Vader and separate from the group as he knows that Vader just wants him, and he can probably save everyone if he leads the Star Destroyer away. Obi-Wan, to everyone's dismay, does not back down from his plan as Leia desperately clings on to him. As a parting gift to Leia, Obi-Wan gives her the holster of Tala that she marked every time she saved a Jedi. A real strength of this series has been in Leia and Obi-Wan's uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. um, something I definitely wasn't expecting to get from the show. And I really think like seeing this relationship just adds a different dimension, you know, to the story as a whole, because we never even get to see Obi-Wan and Leia interact in A New Hope. Mm -hmm. So they don't they don't share any real screen time. But now, you know, it, it just it further adds credence to why, you know, Leia was so desperately reaching out to Obi-Wan, not just because her father recommended him. And why she would name her son Ben. 
you know? Yes. Yes. I was like, well, he must have really made an impact on, you know, Han. Because <laughs> otherwise, like, she doesn't even fucking know the guy. Uh, I mean, I guess she could say, oh, well, he saved us that one time. You know, but then why not name him Luke, you know, uh -huh. after your brother? Obi-Wan then spends a moment reaching out to his master, Qui-Gon, as he claims that he is fated for this duel no matter what. Before he goes, Roken steps in, giving him one more shot to back out of this. When Obi-Wan again refuses, Roken realizes this is about more than just saving them, it's about the two of them, Vader and Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan then parts with Roken, telling him to keep being the leader he is, which Roken claims he's just getting started. I mean, could this be a nod to Roken being in Andor, perhaps? Oh, he's definitely showing up somewhere. Yeah. Like, after this moment. <laughs> He's getting a spinoff series or something. I could see him popping up maybe on like, you know, in, in uh, Bad Batch. Uh, but yeah, no, probably Andor, I would assume. Or who knows? I mean, there's rumors flying around that Obi-Wan could possibly get a second season. I could even see them doing like a path, you know, series. Oh, yeah, this. that would make sense. So um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, if you think about it, like a path series would be a great way to feature other Jedi like, you know, Quinlan Voss, who they, you know, teased a few times, you know, during the series. So, I mean, I, there's a lot of potential there, I think. And I'm all for seeing more Inquisitors hunting Jedi. <laughs> that would be a great way to bring Cal Kestis in uh, to have him help the path. Yeah, uh I mean, he could pop up in, you know, that series, right? Mm -hmm. Now before Vader is a choice to follow Obi-Wan or finish the path before they become any more troublesome. The Grand Inquisitor claims Obi-Wan is only one Jedi and stopping the path now is more important, but Vader is set on taking Obi-Wan down once and for all and sets the Star Destroyer to chase Obi-Wan. My question is, doesn't he have his own personal transport ship? Couldn't the Star Destroyer stay on the path? while he chased down Obi-Wan alone? Short answer, yes, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> but we're just going to ignore that. <laughs> now, you know that Weasley Grand Inquisitor was like on the first communicator to the Emperor tattling on oh, Vader, absolutely. Here, right? <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but I thought the same thing. I was like, couldn't Vader just take his ship and they, they could just continue to follow, uh -huh. you know, the the path on their ship like i never understood the star destroyers like they carry a ton of tie fighters on them i know they're short range fighters but you just send those out while you're also bombarding these ships problem solved yeah and we know what a skilled pilot you know Anakin is so he can handle his own uh -huh. going after obi-wan <laughs> but maybe he wanted the full force of the empire backing him up i don't know but that doesn't even make sense because after their battle here they do just kind of let Obi-Wan fly off the planet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Where do they go? <laughs> we return to Owen and Beru as they kind of lie to Luke on Tatooine about Tusken Raiders coming to possibly attack their farm, all the while guiding him to their panic room and telling him to run away in case anything bad happens. But the 10-year-old seems ready to fight rather than being scared of whatever his uncle and aunt are actually upset about. It's nice to see Luke display the same kind of gumption that Leia is, you know, showing off, mm -hmm. you know, in this series. Um, I'm also loving, like, just how prepared Owen and Baru are 
you know, just in case the situation does happen. Obi-Wan followed by Vader descend upon a deserted planet with tall standing rocks. Meanwhile, Reva makes her approach to the Lars farm in the cover of darkness as we enter our episode's dueling narrative battles. Vader standing before Obi-Wan asks if he has come to destroy him, in which Obi-Wan ignites his blade, gets in his form four stance, and proclaims, I will do what I must, initiating their duel. Yeah, this mirrors their uh, dialogue in Revenge of the Sith, right? Yes, except for this time, Vader says, I will kill you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you will die, right? <laughs> so I was super relieved that we were going to get another showdown between these two. Um, while I did, for the most part, enjoy, you know, their first initial confrontation, and I thought it made sense story-wise for where Obi-Wan was at the time, I'm glad, you know, that we're getting this final button on the relationship between Anakin and Obi-Wan here. The full power of Vader and Obi-Wan are on display like never before as they fight amongst the rocks. And while Obi-Wan starts off on top in this fight, the sheer power of the force in his old Padawan gets the better of him as Vader forces the ground to crumble beneath Obi-Wan's feet. Vader then proceeds to bury Obi-Wan in rocks, already claiming victory as he walks away. Yeah, it definitely seems like what Vader lacks in swordsmanship nowadays is made up by his sheer power and use of the force. I mean, he, he pulled the fucking force quake on Obi-Wan. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that shit at all. It is pretty poetic that he gave himself the high ground, right? No, exactly. I was like, who has the high ground now, bitch? <laughs> Obi-Wan now trapped in the ground using the force to keep himself from being completely crushed, remembers all his past fights with Anakin and Vader. But as his thoughts turn to Leia, Luke, and the path, he is able to muster up the strength to free himself from the rock tomb and go back after Vader. I really love this scene. It was a real turning point for Obi-Wan. Um, I was expecting to hear Qui-Gon's voice. Yes. You know, at some point during this moment. Uh, it was totally fucking amazing Spider-Man yes. number 33, <laughs> right? <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, they, they paid uh, homage to it in Homecoming, mm. but it, it's exactly that moment, like beat for beat. And I loved every second of it. Don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, I'm almost glad that we didn't get the Qui-Gon moment here because I think it was more important for Obi-Wan to pull himself up, you know, from the rubble on his own, you know, using the inspiration in, you know, meeting Leia for the first time and, you know, knowing that he's, you know, how important it is that he has to protect Luke to find that strength within himself and, you know, fully now reconnect with the Force to take on Vader in this moment. I mean, I did think I was expecting Qui-Gon's voice as well, but then I started to think maybe it would be a little bit too much, you know, close to Ray, because I was thinking like all these, uh, you know, Jedi. Why isn't he thinking about any of the Jedi that have fallen, you know, before this fight? But I, it was more emotional weight to think of Luke and Leia in this scene. Well, too, I think he's drawing more on his relationship with Anakin yes. here, because mm -hmm. if you, you know, the, all the flashbacks we hear are of him and Anakin. So it makes sense. And then he realizes, well, you know, I can honor my, you know, friends by, you know, protecting his children from himself, basically. And in doing so, giving the future a fighting chance against the Empire. Here, Obi-Wan shows why he is a master of the Force as he takes Vader by surprise, bombarding him with every rock in sight. I know floating rocks aren't the only thing Jedis do, but goddamn, this was badass, uh -huh. right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we haven't seen uh, Obi-Wan 
do anything like this. Yes, yes. Like seeing his sheer power on display mm-hmm. like this, pretty fucking awesome. Vader struggling to keep up in all of this has his controls damaged by Obi-Wan who goes for the finishing blow and actually slices open the mask of Vader. In a scene that parallels the final moments of one of my favorite duels of all time between Vader and Ahsoka, Obi-Wan looks into the face behind the mask, seeing what has truly become of Anakin. All Obi-Wan can do in this moment is apologize for what he feels he is responsible for, but Vader is quick to correct Obi-Wan, claiming Vader killed Anakin, not him, in which Obi-Wan finally lets Anakin be dead and accept that Vader is all that remains before leaving the vengeful Darth behind to wheeze in anguish. This moment alone justifies the entire series, in my mind. Um, I thought this was beautifully done uh, just the heartache in, you know, Ewan McGregor's voice as he apologizes to Anakin for failing him. Uh, God damn. And that's why you have an actor that caliber, mm-hmm. you know, playing Obi-Wan, you know, for this moment. Uh, it just, you know, seeing Hayden Christensen underneath the mask. I mean, I know we saw it in animated form in Rebels, but... Just, you know, for me, it finally made Anakin Invader feel as one, if that makes any sense. You know, before it felt like they're almost two separate characters, but seeing Anakin's face underneath that cracked helmet, you know, and seeing Hayden Christensen, and that's why it was so important for them to bring Mm -hmm. him into this role, you know, underneath the mask and just, you know, just connected the two characters and made, you know, the character of Anakin Skywalker and Vader whole, you know, in my mind, I loved like how they played with the lighting, you Mm -hmm. know, with the lightsabers going back and forth, you could see kind of the struggle that, you know, Anakin was going through just even in his response to Obi-Wan just, you know, gives in to his rage and his hate. Um, But in a weird way too, like he kind of lets Obi-Wan off the hook when he tells him that, you know, he's the one, who killed Anakin Skywalker, that it wasn't Obi-Wan. And I feel like that gives Obi-Wan kind of the resolve to just walk away, that the blame doesn't solely fall on his shoulders. You know, it it frees him Mm -hmm. in a weird way. Well, that's because it was all Qui-Gon's fault anyway. (laughs) You don't have to tell me, brother. (laughs) Fuck that guy. No, absolutely masterfully done scene. I was you you took all the words. I mean, the lighting, even to the voice effect where he oh starts slowly yes. turning back into Vader. The blending of James yeah. Earl Jones and Anakin's voice all together like that, just perfect. I think for me it's definitely going to go down as one of my like top Star Wars moments of all time. It just means so much for both of those characters arcs. Now I won't lie, I definitely had one of those, you know, moments that i have whenever i read a batman comic or watch batman film where i'm like kill that motherfucker what are you doing Uh don't let the joker live (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time i feel like the emperor would have just found a replacement for vader you know and caused just as much havoc yeah but no one is as strong as vader like when he was walking away i i was openly saying you know how many lives you've just cost by leaving him there? <laughs> I don't know. Tarkin would have taken out Leia's oh, planet yeah. regardless. 
And if you think about it, if he did kill Vader, then you wouldn't have Luke, you know, rising and becoming the Jedi that he becomes. So, so in a roundabout way, by letting Vader live, you know, he did eventually bring balance to the Force because Vader's the one, along with Luke, obviously, who takes out the Emperor. Still didn't know that in the moment. He's <laughs> <laughs> got the Force, man. He sensed uh-huh. it. <laughs> also, I did want to mention, like, I really enjoyed the score of this episode. I felt like the rest of the episodes, it's been a little lackluster, but here was the first time where I felt like it really kind of enhanced, you know, the story. Um, It seemed like they were really shying away from using, you know, the familiar score of, you know, the original trilogy and all the character themes for some reason. Like, I understand why they do that in, like, The Mandalorian, you know, because it isn't, you know, the Skywalker saga, Mm -hmm. if you will, and it's its own story. But here you're using original trilogy characters, so why not use their themes? But it felt like they were, you know, keeping away from it until this episode. But I'm not just talking about the use of, you know, the classic, you know, music from Star Wars, you know, in this episode. The episode, in, like, overall, I felt like the score was an upgrade from what we were getting. What's funny is I'm kind of the opposite on this episode. I didn't enjoy the score during the fight. I, I, I was very surprised. I was like, this should be something a little bit more impactful in comparison to what we've gotten the rest of the show. And I felt like it almost, especially the start of it, kind of using the Obi-Wan theme from the show, just didn't seem like enough for this fight. So you actually enjoyed the score for the rest of the series? I've been okay with it. It hasn't wowed me at any point, but I was never like, oh, this is bad. I just, I don't know. It did nothing for me, Mm -hmm. you know, where I felt like, you know, Shows like The Mandalorian, even like The Book of Boba Fett, like I thought the scores were great um, and really enhanced mm-hmm. those stories. It felt like Star Wars, even though there was something original and brand new, where I felt like this score has been kind of uninspired and really could have been, you know, from any, you know, random live action sci-fi series. Before we move on, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Manscaped. Gentlemen, all men strive for gold in their life, right? Gold medals, gold watches, gold everything. However, there's a certain type of man who goes the extra mile. He walks with the confidence of an eagle and giggles in the face of danger. He's a big hairless winning machine. And when he unzips his pants, he sees platinum. That's right, Manscaped would like to introduce you to their best, biggest, ultimate hygiene bundle yet, the Platinum Package 4.0. Manscaped is the leader below the waist grooming. Now trust them with the whole shebang. Join the 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20 Nerd Show. Nothing makes you feel more platinum than having your hygiene in check. And with convention season upon us, you're gonna want to make sure you're smelling good and feeling good while you wait in line. Manscaped's brand new Platinum Package 4.0 is the biggest bundle they've ever offered, giving you a bulk discount on Manscaped's top products. The Manscaped Platinum Package 4.0 is the one-stop shop for the man who deserves it all. 
They've designed this package to allow you to fully align your entire hygiene routine with their elite products. Inside this platinum package, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, Weed Whacker ear and nose hair trimmer, Ultra Premium Body Wash, Ultra Premium 2-in-1 Shampoo plus Conditioner, Ultra Premium Deodorant, Crop Preserver Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant, Crop Reviver Ball Spray Toner, Anti-Chafing Boxers, and the Shed Travel Bag to hold your goods while traveling. The Lawnmower 4.0 Body Trimmer and Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer feature proprietary advanced skin safe technology to protect your delicate parts and holes. Both are actually water resistant so you can shave with less mess. In addition to shaving, you can now completely upgrade your shower routine with an ultra premium body wash and ultra premium 2-in-1 plus conditioner. You'll have your skin and hair feeling hydrated and smelling fresh. And don't forget to apply their aluminum free ultra premium deodorant for that cologne quality scent on the go. Thankfully, their Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner can solve this problem for you. Once they touch your sack, you'll never go back. Manscaped even threw in two free gifts to their Platinum Package 4.0. The Manscaped Boxers and Shed Travel Bag bring your comfort and boxers to another level. The Platinum Package 4.0 covers all bases from head to toe. It's the best bang for your shebang. So listeners, get 20% off plus free shipping with our code 20NerdShow at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at Manscaped.com using our code 20NerdShow. It's time you enjoyed the finer things in life and get yourself a platinum package for your platinum package. While that entire fight was going on, we were also cutting back and forth to Tatooine where Reva assaulted the Lars farm. The injured Reva struggles with Owen and Beru's barrage, but being a force wielder has its advantages as she still makes her way past them, discovering Luke has run out from the farm to some nearby canyons. Not to throw shade at the young actress who's playing Princess Leia, <laughs> but at least the actor playing Luke can actually run. <laughs> It felt a little more realistic. Okay, he's he's at least moving at a fast pace. Um, you know, it is what it is. Like, I mean, I guess they can explain Reva struggling, like hunting down Luke here by the fact that she's, you know, gravely injured. Um, but at least, you know, she's not just chasing him in some forest. Like, you know, they do have a safe room set up. Mm. You know, they are, you know, prepared and like, you know, she's having to like deal with, you know, crazy aunt Baru and you know uncle owen and at the end of the day i mean i guess he didn't really escape you know <laughs> you know she does eventually catch up to him well there's plenty of moments where yeah she probably should have been able to kill both Baru and owen in this scene but we know there's they're not going to get hurt they're not going to die they're, they're they have you know established futures and that was kind of my biggest issue with this whole sequence with reva was knowing there's not really any stakes here. There's, I know all these characters get out of this. And I felt like, for me at least, what would have been a better sequence, and, and this was just my idea, was having her go to Alderaan, where there's more characters there that we barely have a relationship with, know much about, and I feel like the relationship between Obi-Wan and Leia has been a bigger aspect of this show, where if her coming after Leia one more time could have been a bigger moment for his save. 
especially since he could have she could have injured people and taken out you know guards and even the mom if, if they wanted to go that dark with it yeah i guess but at the same time i feel like you know that leia is making it out alive mm-hmm. i think maybe if bail actually like delivered on his promise in that transmission uh to obi-wan where he said that you know he'll go over there to uh you know protect luke you know maybe if he sent you know some of his you know security mm-hmm. force over there would at least give her you know more obstacles to cut through than just you know good old uncle owen and amperu <laughs> um but i don't know it didn't bother me so much i just wish it didn't take so much time away from the duel between obi-wan and vader and i understand they gave us everything that they wanted to give us in that duel between vader and obi-wan but you know as a fan i just want to see more and i felt like it was kind of taking me out of the moment at times Mm -hmm. and even though i ended up loving it it did feel like you know this storyline running parallel to that fight sequence was getting in the way of that moment at times Mm -hmm. here luke does his best to hide from her but reva eventually sees him and knocks him down from a ledge with her target now laying in front of her she begins to start having flashbacks to order 66 and vader as she mirrors the actions of anakin that day preparing to strike down luke and sees herself as a youngling in luke's position i did enjoy this moment i thought it made sense for the character and where she was at i mean has she become the monster that she's hated you know for so many years while it was a little predictable i still feel like it made the most sense for the story across the galaxy obi-wan feels luke being in danger and sets off to tatooine immediately where he finds baru and owen desperately trying to find luke but off in the distance baru spots reva approaching carrying what looked like a lifeless luke in her arms but he was simply knocked out from the earlier fall Reva then begins to cry over what she attempted and how her inability to enact revenge has failed all her fallen friends. But Obi-Wan explains to Reva it is her act of mercy that has you know, truly given her friends peace, that she chose to become something better than what Vader is, and that what she chooses to do next is in her hands, in which Reva decides to bury her Inquisitor lightsaber in the sands of Tatooine. There's a lot of lightsabers buried in Tatooine, yeah, right? <laughs> quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> this made me wonder like how long Reva's actually been on the job because you'd, you'd have to believe that she'd have to commit a lot of like a, atrocities to become you know uh, an inquisitor uh but i guess this was the moment where she realized you know how flawed her mission really was but regardless i think i enjoyed her arc um for the most part especially since it allowed us to really dive into like what a horrendous monster you know Anakin is you know during order 66 especially since disney had the balls not to like shy away from the youngling moment uh which i was kind of surprised by because i mean it is probably like one of the darkest moments in like you know star wars history So, um, and I guess I shouldn't be surprised that she actually survived this series. I, I, I'm guessing that maybe she'll show up somewhere else. Oh yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, you know, either in animated form or in another series, maybe helping the path I could see, you know, and trying to rescue, you know, you know, Jedi on the run. I mean, she does have an inside knowledge now on how the Inquisitors work. So it feels like it only makes sense, you know, to, you know, see the character further down the line in the future. So I'm not the biggest fan of that storyline where it's a, you know, a dark sided character that, you know, finds redemption. But I do feel like 
I, I was okay with you her. You mean the Dark Vader storyline? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is something that they do in Star Wars storylines over and over again when it comes to the comics, the video games, uh-huh. the movies. We've I've seen it like a hundred times now. It's it's definitely an ongoing yes. thing. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, I'm a little over redemption stories, but I think I would have liked this a little bit more if there was a second season and we got to see her, you know, getting to more of that redemption because I felt like we just saw her hit the, you know, hit the wall, hit the fall in that last episode. And then if we had gotten some more time with it, I would have appreciated it a little bit more. No, I agree. I definitely feel like if we got to spend more time with her, you know, her entire arc would have landed more. Um, but at the same time, like I didn't necessarily bump up against mm-hmm. this story only being six episodes long. You know, it felt like enough time to get from point A to point B and tell the story that they wanted to tell, um, where I feel like if you stretch it out too long, you might bump into, you know, the this, you know, the issue that we have with other series where you get a bunch of weird like filler episodes that aren't needed. Um, you know, maybe just a couple more episodes mm-hmm. um, just so we could have a little more like nuanced storytelling and, you know, we as viewers aren't left, you know, having to fill in, you know, some plot points that I felt were much needed because um, it definitely felt like they had to cut some corners here and there. But anyway, when I was going through all this again for the episode and everything, I realized something that I, I completely forgot about. You know, they're having issues at the start of this, you know, because they can't get their hyperdrive working. And then we see the dropship that Obi-Wan was using has an active working hyperdrive. Why didn't they just take the parts from that and fix their own ship at the beginning I of the show? I don't know how like spaceship mechanics work, Christian. <laughs> you know damn well that I someone mean, could have figured yes, that out. Yes, it's a plot point though. It. Just like, you know, <laughs> Leia finds her droid and it's literally just a little tiny clip on the back of it that she's able to undo and, you know, it turns it good again, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like she just flipped the switch and okay, now you're on good mode. So we're okay. Like, yes, it's convenient, <laughs> but I'm not an astral mechanic. Like, I don't know if you could take an engine out of one ship and put it in another. You know, especially the size of those ships. They're two different sizes, right? I'm sure there was some component there that could have saved their I lives. I mean, yes, this is all make-believe. Yes. So, yes, you could write that into the story if you wanted to. But then but then we wouldn't get the chase. I, I don't know. I'm just saying it bothered me. I'm willing to move on. <laughs> <laughs> Vader, who has returned to his castle, is reporting in to the Emperor that Obi-Wan will not escape him next time. But almost tauntingly, the Emperor claims perhaps Vader's mind is too clouded with the past and of his former master, and how he may have actually been ultimately weakened by Obi-Wan. The Emperor claims Vader needs to overcome his past, as you know, Vader sits there in a suit designed to torture him and remind him of the day he failed on Mustafar, which is also, you know, the site of his castle he lives in. <laughs> anyway, Vader, in order to show his loyalty to his new master, claims Obi-Wan means nothing to him as the Imperial March closes out the scene. Well, and then the suit is also, though, to keep him in a weakened state, right? That's part of the reason for that suit. 
so he's not able to kill him so easily. Uh, and then the the cast, now in all fairness, too, Vader yes. chooses to live on Mustafar <laughs> to remind him so he can stare off in the window and remember when he was burning alive, you know, and Obi-Wan just walked away. So that's his own personal choice, <laughs> but I, I get what you make. <laughs> um, it was interesting to see, like, how quickly Vader fell in line with what the, you know, Emperor wanted. But at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, that's all bullshit. You know, he still <laughs> fucking hates Obi-Wan. You know, I mean, just that cry at the end of that battle. Oh, my God. Bone chilling. But yeah, no, I didn't mind this scene because obviously, story-wise, you can't have Vader continuously hunting Obi-Wan mm-hmm. and that being his sole focus. Um, you know, especially since we know we're still 10 years out from A New Hope. I mean, with Obi-Wan being so horrible at hiding, like, they need a story reason why <laughs> Vader didn't eventually find him, right? On Olderon, we return to young Leia getting ready for the day, and to her mother's surprise, putting on Tala's holster. Today, she seems more willing and able to go along with greeting their guests, like we saw at the beginning of the season when her cousins came to town. But instead of her cousins arriving, she gets visited by Obi-Wan, who is returning her droid Lola that she snuck onto his person before he left the path. Obi-Wan decides to open up to Leia a little bit about her parents, telling her the quality she has from both of them, and tells her that one day they could possibly see each other once more in the future if she ever needs, you know, help from a tired old man, as he ends his story with Leia. I thought this was a real, like, touchy note for the series to end on, although it did crack me up that she was more excited to see her droid than, you know, Obi-Wan the man who, like, <laughs> saved her life and, you know, countless others, but it is what it is. I mean, she's a 10-year-old kid, so... Uh-huh. Uh, I did think it was a nice touch also that, you know, he was able to tell her something about, you know, her mother and father uh, and, you know, do it in a positive light, you know, especially when it came to Anakin. I, I think it really goes a long way to signify that, you know, he's finally like moved on and, you know, forgiven himself um, and that she, he's choosing to see Anakin as a different person than uh, Vader. Um, I did think it was smart, too, that, you know, He mentions, you know, no one must know about our relationship, basically. You know, it could endanger us both. Continuity-wise, it kind of makes sense then why in her transmission, she's kind of acting like she doesn't already have a pre-existing relationship with, you know, Obi-Wan. I think it's their roundabout way of, you know, covering their asses, you know? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You know, uh, which I'm fine with. You know, as long as it makes sense, I'm fine. You know, those little continuity issues I've kind of let go with Star Wars a long time ago. You know, like during the prequels, honestly, because I mean, goddamn, you could look back at those movies and be like, wait a second, none of this makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, Star Wars is full of inconsistencies. Yes, it's fine. Yes. <laughs> it is what it is. And I think I said it before, but I feel like the casting of Leia has been, you know, pitch perfect. And, you know, she deserves a lot of praise. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they, you know, if they end up using her, you know, elsewhere in another series, honestly. Returning to Tatooine once more, Obi-Wan clears out his camp and visits the Lars farm. Obi-Wan seems to be giving a goodbye to Owen as he tells him that the only protection Luke needs can be provided by his uncle and aunt. Owen, who's been doing his best to keep, you know, the Force and Obi-Wan away from Luke, decides to have them actually meet for the first time, and we see Obi-Wan not only drop the one-liner hello there, but also give Luke the toy T-16 from A New Hope. Yes, he finally said the thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> they got that trending. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, I'm not sure if this was done on purpose, but it does feel like this kind of opens up, you know, the story to, like, you know, some Obi-Wan and Luke adventures. 
Um, and we've heard, you know, this week that Kathleen Kennedy's, you know, has said that if fans really want it, there's no plans right now, but it could possibly happen. I just don't know if any story that they could possibly tell could live up to what they pulled off here, you know, between Obi-Wan and Vader. Mm -hmm. But I mean, who knows? Would you be interested in seeing like a season two from this series? I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing more of a conflict between Obi-Wan and the Grand Inquisitor because we never really got to see that. You know, we didn't see the Grand Inquisitor chasing him down. But it feels like if the Grand Inquisitor is involved, you know, that's going to lead to another confrontation with Vader, right? I guess it doesn't necessarily have to, though. They go on their own missions all the time. Like, I feel like that would just take away from, you know, this final moment, you know, between, you know, or at least the final moment in this series between <laughs> Vader and Obi-Wan, right? Like, if you go to the well too many times, mm -hmm. it's going to be to, like, diminishing returns eventually. Well, I'm fine with this being a standalone series, and I think we'll get more yeah. into that in our actual reviews. But... I, could, I could see something where, like, you know, Obi-Wan goes up against some bounty hunters or something mm. like that. And maybe that's just me trying to bring more bounty hunters into Star Wars. Probably. But... <laughs> I think there's other stories, you know, that can be told. I just don't know if it's going to live up to this, you know. And also, like, you you can't really have Obi-Wan, like, keep on leaving Tatooine, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> he'd just be the worst guardian at that point. Though I need one Star Wars show where they just don't go to Tatooine for, like, the uh, entire thing. Good luck with that. <laughs> Who knows? It might happen in Andor. I feel like more likely Bad Batch could do that for me. <laughs> Before Obi-Wan can ride off into the distance, he gets a friendly visit from old master Qui-Gon, who claims he has always been there, just that Obi-Wan wasn't ready to see him, and then claims they have some place to go as the show comes to a close. Obi-Wan's probably better off. Qui-Gon probably would have fucked shit up anyway. <laughs> Most likely. <laughs> I know people love him, but I still think he's the worst. Anyway, I mean, hey, maybe there's, you know, something to a series with like Obi-Wan and, you know, Force Ghost Qui-Gon, like training him to get ready for his final showdown or I don't know. I don't know but I, I kind of like that we don't know the like exact way you become a Force Ghost, you know, like I don't need to see that training. I don't know if we need to see it like step uh. by step, but like, <laughs> you know, or maybe it's this Qui-Gon guiding him on his next adventure. I don't know, Christian. You really want to watch that? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I'm more fine with Obi-Wan battling bounty hunters. Uh -huh. honestly. All right, Christian, now that the Obi-Wan series has come to pass, it's time, as always, to give our final review for the season or series, if, if you will. Uh, Christian, what are your overall thoughts on Obi-Wan? Overall, there's a lot to love about this series. It absolutely delivered on the spectacles we've come to love from Star Wars. But often throughout the show, the writing left a lot of moments open for interpretation that, as we've talked about in our weekly breakdowns, just seemed a little too convenient. Rather than, you know, them giving us a well-written explanation or moment to really drive the story along. You get this feeling of them just kind of like taking the easy route outside of the bigger plot points that they gave us throughout the show 
show. It really seemed like they didn't give those smaller stories, you know, as much attention as, you know, Obi-Wan's overall arc, which makes sense. I mean, it is the Obi-Wan show and it was important for them to get his journey right. Like, you know, the story we got between Obi-Wan and Vader this season is chock full of moments that convey such heavy emotional weight. And I give them credit for pulling that off in a, you know, satisfying manner. But when it came to a lot of the major side narratives, I didn't feel like they, you know, gave it as much attention at least in the writing room. I mean, Reva is one of the biggest parts of this show and the payoff for her development just kind of came off a bit lazy. They introduced plenty of new characters to the world of Star Wars and a lot of their stories kind of end with open plot threads. And it makes me wonder if the writers were handcuffed at all in not doing too much with these characters so that they will have you know the ability to show up in other series or go into a more deep dive with these characters later in other shows. After all, they do have to keep pumping these out for Disney Plus, but in this show alone, the side characters stories didn't do enough for me to really bring this show to a higher level than I get from watching you know, other Star Wars series like Mando and Boba. Nonetheless, I am still very satisfied with the single story on its own because of how much they delivered on Obi-Wan and his journey to reclaiming his true Jedi self and how they executed the horrors of Vader. Vader versus Obi-Wan is definitely going to be a top contender for best duels in a lot of people's eyes going forward for sure. I could, you know, nitpick at a lot of the things like, you know, Hayden Christensen, you know, not being de-aged, but those elements didn't really ruin the overall show. It was a memorable journey just with some minor inconsistencies. And with that said, I'm going to give this series a B. While Obi-Wan is not the perfect show by any means, and there are some definite gaps in logic and storytelling, maybe a little too many for my tastes. But regardless of that, I really did enjoy the series and I thought overall it added a lot of depth and texture when it came to Obi-Wan and Vader's story. Uh, the series delivered some just unforgettable moments into like Star Wars lore. Imagine when this show was initially announced that we'd be getting this much Vader. And honestly, it just made me want more. <laughs> I mean, I just love the fact that we're seeing Vader finally in his full glory on the screen. Uh, and it really, for me as a Star Wars fan, goes a long way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you give me Vader doing some sinister Sith shit and I'm pretty satisfied, honestly. <laughs> You know, I'm not the biggest prequel fan. Uh, I grew up with the original trilogy, uh, but you know, I feel like this series along with, you know, of course the Clone Wars just does a lot to kind of pacify those films for me. I felt like seeing Obi-Wan like at his weakest allowed us to finally truly get to know him as a character. And that's really, at the end of the day, what I needed out of this show. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm also going to give Obi-Wan a B. I can look past the show's flaws and some minor gripes as long as my enjoyment for the characters and the story are enhanced because of the series' existence. And I think, you know, in the long run, that's where I'm left after the finale of, you know, the show. Well, that puts a bow on Obi-Wan for now. Uh, make sure to join us this August if you're a Star Wars fan as we break down the upcoming Andor series. This week's episode is also sponsored by 
Athletic Greens. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I realized gamer foods like energy drinks and chips weren't all that nutritional. I hated taking vitamins as well and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. And luckily with AG1, I've found a tropical flavored blend that I drink every single morning. Well, Christian, that's because with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day off right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy recovery focus, and aging. You know, all of the things. I even have my family hooked on it, Christian, and they love it. We're even making sure to take it with us on vacation this summer. Your subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D, which is important for a recluse streamer like me that admittedly doesn't get enough sunlight. And let me tell you, I've never slept better, and that's because AG1 supports better sleep quality along with mental clarity and alertness. And you also have to love the price. It costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and that's cheaper than buying all the supplements yourself. And we're not alone in loving athletic greens because currently they have over 7,000 five-star reviews. So right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every single day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit Athletic athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, Christian, let's go ahead and break down episode three of Miss Marvel. Warning spoiler alert. Major spoilers for the Miss Marvel series ahead. You have been warned. And also, what are you? Like, respectfully, like, what are we? In our home dimension, the Noor dimension, we're known as clandestines. As to what we are, we've been called Ajnabi, Majnu, Unseen, the list goes on. But what we're most commonly known as is Jinn. I'm sorry, did you just say Jinn? After a surprisingly epic version of the Marvel logo, we kick off this week's episode of Miss Marvel in British-occupied India back in 1942. Here we meet a group excavating in a mysterious underground site, where our mystery woman from last week's episode, Najma, finds Kamala's bangle on a severed blue arm. Now we'll find out this wasn't the case at all, but I totally thought this was going to be like a Cree, you know, arm here with the bangle. Yeah, same here. Um, but... I guess that's not the route they're going. We're quickly introduced to Kamala's great-grandmother, Aisha, who takes charge in this scene and actually puts on the bangle, being imbued with the power. The group then talks about how there are actually two bangles in this world and how they'll need them both to get home. Aisha claiming that the British have most likely already scoped through this entire area and have taken it, states that they need to try to get home no matter what. Unfortunately, their time in this cave is cut short when the British come to attack. Though before we leave this scene, we do notice a familiar symbol on the floor as it's the Ten Rings from Shang-Chi. Yeah, I mean, with knowing what we know happens at the end of Shang-Chi with Captain Marvel exploring that power signature that seems to be triggered right by the Ten Rings, I'm definitely starting mm -hmm. to wonder if, you know, 
these two stories, you know, Shang-Chi and Ms. Marvel's story is going to somehow intersect in the, you know, upcoming Marvel's film. Yeah, I'm definitely wondering if the series is going to end with some type of connection and or like an after credit scene that might allude to Shang-Chi more. We then find out that the opening scene was a story being told to Kamala by Najma on how they came about the bangle. Here Najma explains exactly what and who she is along with her comrades as she tells Kamala they're a group of jinn from the Noor dimension aka the light dimension in Marvel Comics and that their group is also called the clandestine. Apparently they were you know exiled and need the power of the bangles to get back to the Noor dimension but they lost Aisha during the partition and were never able to use the power. So apparently they're there was a comic book named the clandestines in uh marvel at one point um it was by alan davis in like the mid 90s did involve jinns um now kamala's story in the comics have nothing to do with this group so i don't know why they're choosing you know this group and if this group has anything to do with the group in the comic books. Cause like I said, I know nothing about those books. So I, I don't know if they just chose to use the name or just like loosely base these characters off those characters. Uh, but I don't know why they chose to make them part of Kamala's origin story other than they just didn't want to use the Inhumans, you know? Um, uh -huh. <laughs> now I do believe that the light dimension is kind of part of the origin story for uh, Monica Rambeau's powers in the comics. Uh, but I'd have to read up on that to make sure. Uh, I believe mm. somehow that's tied into her power set. So um, I'm wondering if that's going to also come into play, you know, uh, in the Marvel's film, since we know Monica is going to be part of it. Now, when it comes to like these bangles, I do feel like there's still a good chance that these are the Negabands at the end of the day because otherwise it would be such an odd choice for them to use something that's so similar to something that's in the comic books and not just have it be just that right mm -hmm. um and it would just be the perfect tie-in you know knowing you know carol's history with the kree um you know to have the nega bands be you know kind of kamala's source of power so even though it doesn't necessarily seem like it now, I feel like that's going to come into fruition down the line at some point. Damon, you know who must be feeling good right now? Who's that, Christian? Someone who owns an issue one of the clandestines. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I might have looked it up on eBay already, but, you know. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I mean, were you incredibly impressed by them here? I was intrigued. I'm hoping that there's a little bit more to them than just magically producing these very odd weapons. But yeah, right. Yeah. And like, like that hammer made no not sense that menacing me. at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> it just felt like stuff that they picked up at the local Home Depot or something. Uh -huh. But we'll get into that later. <laughs> Kamala drops in on Bruno to explain all she's learned and how the clandestine want her to help in getting them home to the Nor dimension. Bruno, having read some of Dr. Selvig's work, you know, the scientist from, you know, Thor and Avengers, uh, begins looking into what it would take to, you know, travel to the Nor dimension. In his search for answers, he learns of some dark omens of the Jinn and how to get them back to the Nor dimension which they will apparently need to access some type of primordial power. Bruno going further to crunch the numbers, learns that the amount of energy needed to make the trip would be about the same base energy as the sun, which could also cause a world-ending explosion if she attempts to do this. 
Yes, the uh, plot thickens. I think after the end of, you know, the conversation between uh, Kamala and the uh, clandestines, you kind of got the feeling that they couldn't be trusted. Um, mm-hmm. So I wasn't necessarily surprised by this information. I did like how Bruno was pointing out to like uh, Kamala that, you know, she's kind of rushing into it. She's uh, a little too eager to help. Yeah. You know, she's taking too much of a, a head head on attack like, you know, Captain Marvel would in a situation that probably needs a little bit more thought. Throughout this episode, the weight of being a hero seems a little bit too much for Kamala after she almost dropped a kid on last week's episode. And now with the clandestine there, giving her kind of more of a purpose with the bangle, she sees this as an opportunity to kind of, you know, do something good with the power. It might be rushing into things a little foolhardily. But in multiple scenes, we see her reaching out to others for advice, like her mom and the leader of the mosque, who Kamala pretty much pulls a Sam Raimi Spider-Man by basically ousting that she's the new hero to. Kamala's mother, on the other hand, keeps trying to tell Kamala that her and the family are there to help with her burdens, as she is not alone. I think a big turning point in this series is when Kamala is going to finally feel comfortable enough to share, you know, what's going on with her family. Uh, and realize that that's where her real strength comes from. Kamala's Mm -hmm. relationship with her family and her community is part of what makes her stand out as a hero at the end of the day. While her mom is like, you know, very strict, this, this scene in particular where she's like with her in the bathroom really showed like, you know, she cares and she has an actual, you know, genuine concern for how Kamala's feeling rather than just trying to, you know, lord over what she does. You know, it gave a little bit more dimension to the character that we already know probably was there from the beginning. Yeah. No, I totally was like, just tell her. <laughs> Come on. <Yes. laughs> what are you doing? But I think that's probably going to be the lesson that she ends up learning, you know, when all's said and done. Meanwhile, Damage Control has centered in on Kamala's mosque as they attempt to bully information out of Nakia, who in this scene proves why she would be a perfect fit for the mosque board when she gets them to go away. Later on, we find out that Nakia actually does make it onto the board, even though Kamala is a bit distracted by the choice of having to help the Jin or not when she finds out about it. Kamala also learns this episode that Bruno may have to actually move away because he finally reveals that he's made it into Caltech, though Bruno doesn't want to necessarily leave without knowing that his best friend is going to be okay. The one thing that this series has done really well is juggle and make you care about all these different supporting characters. They're not Mm -hmm. just there to pad the plot. They actually add a different layer. They're not just there to pad the plot. They're doing what a good supporting character should do and letting us really get to know Kamala and her world through their storylines. Kamala's family is also pretty busy throughout this episode as they prepare for her older brother's wedding. Kamala, who is still deciding whether or not to you know, help the clandestine, messages Kamran about needing more time, which he tells her to take her time and to you know, focus on her family wedding this weekend. At the wedding, we get plenty of touching moments between her family members, like Amir and their dad. We get to see the ceremony and the reception with Kamala getting to take her mind off the stress of being a hero, if only for a moment. Now, Damon, I know, you know, you were rested assured by knowing that Kamran is 17 and the relationship can continue to grow and build between these two characters. I mean, while being, you know, an appropriate age does matter, I'm more just happy that he's not like the villain of the story. Uh-huh. <laughs> but anyway, my God, this show is so charming. Like this whole wedding, you know, scene. I mean, at this point, we barely have seen any action, and I was still, like, totally satisfied 
with what we're getting because we're probably about halfway through the episode at this point, right? 75%. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and that says a lot because really, even at this point in the show, like I wasn't bumping up against the fact that we hadn't seen any like super heroics at all. No, this show has a completely different flow compared to all the other Marvel shows we've gotten so far, and I'm, I'm not having any issues with that. Right before Bruno can get in a slow dance with Kamala, here comes Kamran to spoil the evening as he explains Najma is refusing to wait any longer and plans to kill everyone Red Wedding style if Kamala doesn't surrender the power of the bangle over to them right now. Kamala decides to pull the fire alarm to get everyone out to safety as the clandestine make their way in, which actually leads to a pretty good skirmish between Kamala and the clandestine that felt very much, you know, straight out of the comics. As in this point in the show, she is still pretty much coming into her powers. Okay, before I talk about the clandestine, I do want to mention poor Bruno. Like, he is such the ducky of this series. You know, like, <laughs> I just feel so bad for this character. I hope it ends up ending well, you know, for him. And eventually Kamala realizes that she's got, and we get that, like, teen comedy trope, uh, you know, from every, every 80s film where Kamala, like, you know, actually, you know, realizes that, you know, the perfect guy is right underneath her nose. Because, <laughs> my God, what does a guy have to do? <laughs> Let Bruno go. Let him go to Caltech and find someone who's interested in him beyond being a friend. I guess. You know? <laughs> I have a feeling that if this series continues past one season, that this is going to be just an ongoing like plot thread you know, for the show. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Bruno. But once again, to kind of touch upon what I was getting at earlier, uh, I'm really just unimpressed with these clandestines. I mean, the fact that like Kamala as a novice is able to kind of hold off these like you know ancient you know uh jins almost seemed comical yeah but it was still a quirky fun fight i still enjoyed what i got from the action i sequence. thought it was handled well but i think it also mm -hmm. at the same time just made them seem less of a threat yeah. or if there's some <laughs> other big bad you know that kamala is gonna have to deal with or maybe another member or or if they get their hands on the bangle they become more of a, a formidable foe um, I don't know, because I mean, right, there has to be another bangle, right? Because they allude to that in the, the opening sequence. Oh, but yeah. There's do they another say bangle, that they have the bangle or they just don't mention it after that, right? No, and I think they're going to try to just use the one because even at the beginning, Aisha's like, we don't have time to look for another one. We're just going to try and use the one ba okay. bangle to see if that gets me so there. So that bangle's popping up somewhere down the line, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but these clandestines, like like I said before, like their weapons like are so unimpressive. Like yeah. they have a hammer, the one dude swinging around a belt or something. Like what is going on? <laughs> no, the spear was the only one that made sense. Like that's an actual weapon yes, you would use in a but fight. Like, you know? <laughs> I don't know. Like I mean, did they just like spend the whole budget on the effects for Miss Marvel, and there was nothing left over for anyone else? <laughs> I guess. Because <laughs> it just felt like they just grabbed whatever was in the prop department at that point. Yeah, it even seemed like uh, Comrons was using like a, a, like a pocket knife in his fight. Yeah. Which is slashy uh, at yeah, the Yeah, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> I guess it's a tough time to be a Jin. I, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> it is what it is, though. I mean, this story is obviously more character driven. Um, so 
I can look past it. Bruno and Kamran do their best to help out, but the clandestines seem to be, you know, too much for all three of them. When Najma attempts to take the bangle, they are both given a vision of a train from the partition story that we learned about last episode. Luckily, damage control arrives on the scene, neutralizing the clandestine, while Kamala and Bruno are able to sneak out. Though, Nakia finds Kamala using her powers as they leave the building. I mean, this was definitely the moment where I felt like, okay, these guys can't be the big bad if, like, damage control is able to, like, apprehend them so easily. Mm -hmm. Right? I was like, oh, okay. Well, I guess that's over with. Um, and maybe it is damage control in the long run that are, you know, the villains of this series. Because I am curious to hear exactly what is, like, damage control's true motives in this story. Like, are they just running around and, like, apprehending all, like, superpower characters in the MCU now? Like, I don't think the Superhero Registration Act is still in effect. There's gotta be some laws that they have in place, especially for younger superheroes. I don't know what damage control yeah, I mean, is maybe, about it, though. Yeah, maybe it'll come into light here, because it does feel like, you know, in the comics, they're used to clean up giant messes left over by the mm -hmm. superheroes. This all seems above their pay grade. Now, they probably have had an eye on, like, all of you know the people that go to that mosque just because they have suspicions that the hero is from there but i you know i don't know if they've been watching you know the wedding and stuff like that i'm just wondering who they're receiving direct orders from mm -hmm. but maybe that's what you know the series brings to light i won't be surprised if it's some nick fury twist <laughs> or maybe it's some like shadow government group run by uh, Valentina. Oh, maybe. With her family terrified and unaware of what Kamala might be involved with, having seen you know police show up and her pulling the fire alarm, Kamala's whole family just seems again disappointed in her as they attempt to reach out to her, but she refuses to tell them the truth. And before the episode ends, Kamala gets a surprise call from her grandmother, urging her to come to Karachi, Pakistan, as she too saw the vision of the train, which to me most likely means she has the other bangle. No, I agree 100%. I definitely think that's where the story is leading. Um, my guess is next episode will get like the full origin story, uh, you know, probably through flashback once she meets up with her grandmother and, you know, we'll see the clandestines, you know, break out wherever damage control is holding them. Because uh, at that point, we'll be four episodes, you know, into the series and it's only six episodes long. So they got a lot of things to unpack before the series finale. But we say that with every Disney Plus series this like past year. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'll leave us with more like questions than answers. But I mean, we know that we have the Marvel's, you know, movie coming, you know, down the pike and just you know, what, like less than a year. I believe so. And honestly, at this point, I'm hoping that we get a second season of this show. So I just think after seeing like the Ten Ring symbol um, that the bangles are going to definitely fit into the grand scope of things when it comes to the MCU somehow. And I still have this sneaky suspicion that the Kree are going to be behind them. It would just feel like such a missed opportunity, you know, not to tie Kamala directly to, you know, Carol's story. But regardless of how I feel about, you know, the show's villains so far. Uh, I've been really enjoying it. I look forward to breaking down episode four next week. I think she saw her knight in shining armor go off into the sunset. I think she was a little sweet on Christian Cage, if you know what I mean. I think she wanted me to be Jungle Boy's father. 
And here's the thing, I know Jungle Boy, he looked at me like a father figure. He sure did. But here's the thing, Jungle Boy, I never wanted to be your father. I never wanted to be your father figure. You have a father, but your father's dead. Damn. All right, Christian, AEW New Japan's uh, Forbidden Door pay-per-view is finally upon us, and it's definitely been a rocky road. The build has been pretty lackluster, uh, but you know what? Mm -hmm. Honestly, I'm a little more forgiving than I was with the Double or Nothing build, just because, I mean, they've been bitten so hard by the injury bug. Um, I mean, it's more like a fucking plague, honestly. It's taken away some of their, you know, key names on the roster. So, and just... Also, knowing how much like politics come into play when you do a super show like this, I don't know. It is what it is. I think at the end of the day, it's still going to be a fantastic show, regardless of us not necessarily getting the dream matches that we kind of, you know, hoped for. Um, I, I feel like this is not a one off. So I'm not that disappointed. And I, I feel like in the long run, you know, Tony Khan hopefully will learn from this year's mistakes and it will lead to even better show next year. With a more available roster. Yes. I mean, that alone <laughs> will make the show 10 times better. I yes. mean, you're missing Brian Danielson. You're missing Kenny Omega. I mean, you're missing CM Punk. I mean, those are your top three guys, really, if you think about it. And then on top of it, Fun. MJF isn't on the card, right? Yeah. And even Ishii from fucking New yes, Japan that is just out came now. out. Um, you know, uh, uh, Naito isn't on the card. Yes. So I don't know if he's injured or whatnot. Uh, so it is what it is. I also feel like it was a mistake to do this just a month after your last pay-per-view. Hopefully next time, yeah. schedule-wise, they're able to kind of like have it like at least a couple months removed. That way they can take their time in introducing some of these storylines and some of these new characters to an audience who might not know, you know, New Japan at all. So I know I probably sound like an AEW shill, but I feel like Tony's done what he's could with the pretty shitty situation. You know, he's had to really roll with the punches in the long run here. I mean, trust me, if after this show, you know, we still have these lackluster, you know, programs and builds like we had, you know, like we've had over the last couple of months, we'll be the first to call them out. No, yeah. I mean, the last few weeks we've done that before. So <laughs> we did it, you know, leading up to double or nothing. But anyway, let's go ahead and preview the show and, you know, maybe give our predictions for the outcome. Um, I guess that's worth do doing, but it does kind of feel like a glorified ex exhibition. <laughs> it, it is what it is. I mean, some of these matches are a little like thrown together, but. You know, mm. whatever. It's a good way to preview the card, I guess. I mean, it's what I usually watch New Japan matches for. You know, I, I'm I'm not like super following a lot of their stories half the time. I'm just there to watch a decent match. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, with New Japan, they do have a lot of multi-man matches. And I think that's kind of mm. what's sticking with me. There's not really many like one-on-one -on -one matches. But I mean, we've seen that in the past from New Japan cards. Um, and that's very typical super cards. You're just trying to get everyone on the card who you can and get those kind of like dream team ups and matchups. Um, but anyway, let's go ahead and jump into All it. All right. So first match we're going to talk about is Sting, Darby Allen, Shingo Takagi, Hiromu Takahashi versus the Young Bucks, El Phantasmo and Hikaleo of Bullet Club. So, yes, this is being billed as the Bullet Club versus the Dudes with Attitudes. <laughs> Okay. Which was an old uh, Sting faction back in the day. Oh, I, I don't okay. think it was a real faction. It was like him and Junkyard Dog and I don't <laughs> know. Um, this was Surfer Sting stuff. But um, I don't know why they didn't go with L.I.J. 
but it is what it is. Uh, I guess the Young Bucks are going to come out probably in like Bullet Club gear for, you know, one night only. Um, you mm-hmm. know, whatever. I, I was kind of surprised that Hikaleo was part of this team up. Um, it just feels like, oh, well, well who couldn't make the card, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm surprised the Good Brothers are actually not part of this, right? Because, I mean, they've got to mm-hmm. be in the States right now. Yeah, I think Slammiversary just passed. I think they're the Impact Champions right now, actually. Tag Champs. The Tag yeah. Champions, yeah. And I think uh, Anderson has the open weight belt for New Japan. So oh, maybe okay. it's politics. Well. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but yeah, no, I, I'm guessing that the Bullet Club's probably going to go over here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, just since it is, you know, special to see the Young Bucks in that Bullet Club gear um, again. Uh, but I will say this was one of those matches that felt really rushed and thrown together last minute, especially since like Darby just nonchalantly in a backstage promo mentions that like Shingo and Hiramu are part of his team. Like, yeah it was like really no video package the guys aren't even there like i don't know i was like okay this must have just happened like a half <laughs> hour before this like segment so uh but it, it's gonna be a great match regardless i think i'd rather much see like darby verse hiramu um mm-hmm. but i'm sure politics once again played a factor in that and maybe the match can be a will this team work well together or not situation. Oh, we'll never God, know. I hate that. That's WWE. <laughs> <laughs> That's WWE booking all over again. But, I, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's the possibility that this leads to that match eventually. Um, I don't know. I just hope that, like, I want to see Hiramu come out dressed up like Surfer Sting. I think that'd be awesome. <laughs> he'd do it i know he I would see that <laughs> who would think that we'd see a team with sting and fucking shingo and hiramu like uh never <laughs> how bizarre is that up next we got the technical dream match of all time zach zaber jr versus uh to be announced yeah. <laughs> now briefly this was such a strange way to kick off Dynamite with like Brian Danielson coming out and basically announcing that he's not going to be involved in this match or in the Blood and Guts match. I mean, this this match wasn't even really announced in the first place. So like, why kick off your show with this like dour news? I I, I didn't really understand that, but it is what it is. Um, you know, I, I thought it was a good promo trying to hype up, you know, Forbidden Door. Um, it you know. Danielson's great on the mic, so it is what it is. But then he had to make the announcement that, like, it's going to be a mystery, you know, person taking on Zack Sabre Jr. And the crowd just turned on him. And you can tell that, you know, he was like, well, that's it. That's all I've got. You know, (laughs) I'm guessing he kind of expected that to happen. Mm. Um, But I also thought it was a weird choice that they didn't have, like, Zack Sabre Jr. come out and interrupt him and at least get some mic time. You know, or, you know, even like a 30 second like video like package of just like what makes Zack Sabre Jr. like one of the best technical wrestlers in the world. You know, something to explain who this loud British guy is who's coming on your TV screen and just screaming at like Brian Danielson without a microphone. (laughs) I don't know. I I don't feel like it. I didn't feel like it really had the impact that it could have, you know, as for like the mystery, you know, opponent. I'm just getting afraid that like Tony's going to the well one too many times, um, you know, and that kind of seems to be like the band aid to kind of fix everything. You know, like when they have a bad rating week, it feels like, you know, oh, and we've got another signing we're going to announce. 
um, you know, or when it comes to this match, you know, well, you know, I know you guys were all expecting this awesome dream matchup, but unfortunately we can't do it. And I mean, rightfully so. I mean, I, you want Brian to be healthy. Um, but at the same time, I don't know. Like, tell us who the fucking wrestler is. Like, <laughs> just tell us who he's wrestling. I, I, who do you think I it's going to be? I mean, my first, my gut instinct says Gargano. Uh, and he even had recent tweets this t- yesterday of him being in Chicago for a signing uh, event, which he was like, I promise I'm not going to be there. But it still feels like mm. there's a chance. I don't know, the way that Brian was wording it made it feel like someone that he has like a prior relationship with um mm-hmm. so that leads me to believe that's going to be like cesaro perhaps i wouldn't be disappointed with either honestly um but regardless like don't you think both of those guys name value adds more to you know the pay-per-view than just the mystery component of everything like, I feel like, you know, announcing Gargano or Cesaro in this match would lead to more pay-per-view buys than just like, oh, it's another AEW mystery. I guess they're banking it off of, like, people are going to assume it's either one of them. But yeah, why not just say who it is? <laughs> I don't know, man. So, I mean, I... As long as it actually is one of them and it's not like a Maki Ito surprise oh at the event. I wouldn't put it past them because <laughs> that was a dud. And I enjoy her, but yeah, that uh-huh. definitely didn't feel like a worthy surprise. You know, and I get it. They're trying to make up for the fact that, you know, you know, Brian isn't going to be part of this match. But it just feels like the mystery angle has been played out at this point, And it has a lot of potential to blow up in their face. So, you know, you're opening up... To a lot of criticism and to, you know, a lot of people being possibly disappointed where if you announce Cesaro or Gargano, I I think it adds a lot more buzz to your pay-per-view. All right, up next we have Chris Jericho, Sammy Guevara, and Minoru Suzuki going up against Eddie Kingston, Wheeler Yuta, and Shooter. I mean, it's going to be a fun match. It's going to be great seeing, like, Suzuki and Kingston go toe-to-toe, but this is also a match that's just kind of thrown together to be thrown together. Um, mm-hmm. I love me some shooter, so that's cool. But <laughs> and Jericho always seems to put together a really fun match, regardless. It just feels like they could have like thrown in a, a couple more New Japan guys here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's only one or two, I two, right? In this match, I, I, but I'm gonna go with Jericho just because I feel like he's not winning the blood and guts match. Oh, I totally forgot we're supposed so- to be predicting these, right? Yeah. For the last one, it's Zack Sabre Jr. I feel like he's going to win. Well, yeah, because, I mean, there's no one else announced. Yeah, so I'm going to go with Zack Sabre Jr. Because I feel like they're going to try to build up that, you know, Brian Danielson match anyway. So, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. But, yeah, no, I'm, I'm going to go. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go Eddie Kingston here. All right. Eddie Kingston and crew. All right. Uh, what do we got next, Christian? Uh, up next, we got the Ring of Honor and IWGP Tag Team Championships on the line with FTR going up against Jeff Cobb and Great Khan. Versus also Rapungi Vice. Yeah, and this is winner take all. So whoever wins this match is walking out with both titles, with both tag team titles, uh, which is pretty interesting. I'm going to go ahead and say FTR. Seeing how hot FTR is, uh, I'm sure New Japan wouldn't mind having them, you know, holding their tag team titles, especially if they've agreed to, like, you know, travel over to Japan to defend them. Yeah. So it just feels like it makes the most sense at this point. I'm going to go with FTR as well, but I do feel like Rapungi Vice has a strong second, you know, possibility because we do know that they would be willing to go over to New Japan. I hope you're wrong. 
<laughs> Rapungi Vice has never done much for me, honestly. So. No, me neither. I I can't. You all know. You know this. I don't like Rocky, <laughs> Rocky Romero. Yeah, <laughs> you've got his fucking rap CD on your on your iPhone. I get do out not. of here. <laughs> we also have a non forbidden door match up on here with the AEW Women's World Championship on the line between Thunder Rosa and Tony Storm. So I am excited for this match, even though it makes no sense for it to be part of this pay-per-view. Um, I really wish they would have gotten a starting wrestler to, mm. you know, come over and face Thunder Rosa. I guess Tony's a former stardom wrestler, right? Yes, she has worked. So, I mean, player. I guess that kind of counts. <laughs> sure. Um, I would love to see Tony get a run with the title. I just don't think the time is right. It's just so early yeah. on in Thunder's, like, you know, title reign. Uh, I don't think she's ready to lose the belt just yet, but I mean, maybe this like builds to a bigger program um, and eventually we do see Tony capture the belt. AEW does have to do a better job of like building challengers up for Thunder, you know, because at this point I just don't see where she goes after this program, you know, like who's the next contender, like worthy contender, um, Mm -hmm. unless it ends up being Jade, you know. And if if it comes down to Thunder and Jade eventually, I could definitely see Jade capturing both belts. I mean, I agree with you there. I don't know if they're willing to take the title off of her just no, yet. No, I, I, I think that's down the line, definitely. Yeah, no, but I'm just saying, like, Thunder Rosa, I feel like will win this match. But it would be kind of crazy for Tony Storm to have a wild, just surprise victory here. Be a big move for I'd be for it, honestly. I mean, you... Mm-hmm. I mean... I know traditionally they do have longer title reigns in AEW, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with changing that up. It kind of leaves things open to, you know, more unpredictableness. As long as it's something that happens every once in a while and not every other week. Exactly. Like when the Raw title was flopping back and forth between Charlotte and Sasha for like a month. Or honestly, it was happening in AEW with the TNT title. Oh, yeah. Up next, I got the AEW All-Atlantic Championship with Pac, Miro, Malachi Black, and who was who was the new guy added to the Clark match? Connors. So I ah. believe he actually faced Ishii in the finals to qualify to get into this match. So that's why he's been added. Um, I believe he was a New Japan Dojo guy uh, just up to like a year or so ago. Um, you know, I mean, he's a talented wrestler, so... It definitely doesn't help me get over the disappointment of not seeing Ishii and Miro go toe-to-toe, you know, and beat the fuck out of each other in the middle of the ring. This is another match where I feel like you could have had another New Japan guy involved and have it, like, you know, two AEW guys and two New Japan guys. Yeah. When Ishii was involved, I was actually saying that I wouldn't be surprised if Ishii didn't walk away with the title, Um, especially since I think FTR is going to end up winning their tag belts. It's kind of like tick for tat. Um, and that way you could have Ishii kind of like, you know, defending that belt abroad, um, you know, and then making, you know, appearances here and there for AEW until eventually he drops the belt to someone else. And it could be truly an international belt, which is, I think, the point of the belt at this point. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, hopefully these guys can make this belt and this match matter. I mean, they're all super talented, so I'm looking forward to this match. At this point, you know, since Ishii's not involved in the match anymore, I'm probably gonna have to go with miro walking away with the title i want to say miro as well but if they want someone who's going to be going you know back and forth between companies by any chance i could definitely see Pac being the one to travel more with the title than maybe miro i could see that i'm not opposed to it at all i mean you could really turn into like the work rate belt 
if you have pack, you know, running around with it. Mm-hmm. And for that matter, it'd be cool to see Malachi Black with a belt. So, I mean, honestly, either of the three AEW choices isn't a bad thing. So I'll be satisfied either way, I guess, as long as they make that belt matter <laughs> at the end of the day. So Connors is totally coming out with the win because probably totally discredited. Probably. <laughs> All right, uh, we have the IWGP United States Championship between Will Ospreay and Orange Cassidy. I think this is going to be the match that actually stills the show. Uh, yeah. You know, just seeing the chemistry the two guys have, this should definitely be a fun match. Uh, I know a lot of people are a little sour on it because, you know, of Orange's involvement. Uh, but I don't know. It, it, it's going to be a fun mesh of styles, at least. I 100% think Ospreay is going to end up walking away with the win. Um, and rightfully so. At this point, I think we're just a couple years out from Osprey being considered like the best wrestler in the world. I mean, he was on that road until like the pandemic kind of derailed everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's only a matter of time at this point. He only seems to get better and better, you know, every match. It should be a fun time. And hopefully it's not the last time we see Osprey in an AEW ring, you know. Uh, in the long run. No, I think Osprey's going to win as well. I just, I have a feeling that this match is going to get as probably theatric as, you know, Osprey versus Ibushi. Well, up next, we have the interim AEW World Heavyweight Championship match between Jon Moxley and his fated foe, Hiroshi Tanahashi. So I can't imagine Moxley not winning this match, um, just let alone knowing that the G1 is right around the corner and Tanahashi's going to be part of that. So, I mean, that pretty much takes, if, if Tanahashi walked away with the belt, that would take him off AEW TV and the championship off AEW. So, I mean, mm-hmm. what would be the point of the interim title if Tanahashi wins it, right? <laughs> so, yeah, no, Moxley has to win this belt. It's going to be a fantastic match, but I think they're going to be really surprised just how good it is. Tanahashi's a little banged up at this point, but... You know, he's a true pro and Moxley has been looking forward to this for so long. So there's no way that this like match doesn't deliver in my mind. I also feel like Khan's got something in store for this matchup by the end. Like maybe someone's going to show up or someone's going to, you know, interfere by the end of it just to start a program with Moxley going forward. I think maybe they go the more like traditional New Japan route, like maybe at the end of the match. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, yeah. and like someone comes out and challenges Moxley. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just saying something. I feel like is going to happen here. Could it, could it be MJF? Maybe. I mean, that would be a good time to start it up. You know, you have him show up at the pay per view, probably unannounced, saying, "I deserve this more than anyone else." Mm. I don't know. We'll I feel see. like if anyone can keep MJF heel, it would be Moxley. I think it would have to be a deal where like. MJF attacks him while like Moxley's like celebrating in the mm-hmm. crowd, you know, so, something like that, where it looks like MJF is coming from the outside, you know, on his own, um, not working a program since, you know, he left, you know, in a, you know, quote unquote shoot <laughs> just to kind of make it look like he's gone rogue and he's doing his own thing. That's the kind of storyline that would lead to some buzz actually being around the intern belt because it's going to need all the help that it can get right now because it's just because of course i mean rightfully so everyone sees it as just a glorified placeholder until you know cm punk gets back but if you know mjf can capture that interim title then when cm punk comes back it's even a bigger deal because then you know it sets up mjf you know versus cm punk part two we got our final match the iwgp world heavyweight championship between jay white okada 
Hangman Adam Page and Adam Cole, baby. First of all, thank God Okada is part of this show. Because if they would have like teased him multiple times and like didn't deliver him to an AEW audience, that would just be yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, WWE booking, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I was getting I was getting a little worried though. I mean, they waited to the very last minute to have him come out. Uh, but thank God he yes, did. I was waiting for that um, coin drop the whole time. I yes, yes. And the crowd definitely popped when they heard it. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm I'm a little disappointed this is a four-way match, and I'm not sure why. I'm guessing that Adam Cole's gonna eat the pin here. <laughs> um I, I i wish he wasn't part of the match to be honest i feel like the better match would probably be a three-way between like hangman uh white and you know okada um but it is what it is since jay white just captured the title i'm guessing he's gonna walk out of the pay-per-view still iwgp you know champion but who knows maybe they swerve us maybe okada regains that title and you know they can end the show with Kenny Omega coming out and, you know, standing in front of them and, and setting up Okada versus Omega. Would it be four? Yeah, it would be four at that point. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't be upset if Jay White won and still got that same situation where we have, you know, Omega trying to make up for his loss to uh, White when he left. Especially after everything yeah, he said this past uh, month. And I know this is just fantasy booking, but what if hangman actually won the belt that would be insane <laughs> do you have hangman go it, over there then for a little bit yeah why not i mean well at this point i don't know if you could afford him going <laughs> over there but i mean when the roster's working and operating 100 percent, i mean you could totally have hangman over there you know and you know adding so much to his character and to the aew mm. brand by you know representing you know the company holding that title um, and I'm sure New Japan wouldn't mind a little star power. I mean, he could drop the belt before the G1 or after the G1 you know, to whoever, or he could be part of, you know, Wrestle Kingdom. You know, it's a two night event now. So maybe he loses the belt on the first night and then, you know, whoever, you know, wins it from him, defends it on the second night. Well, yeah, but it's six months away is the problem. <laughs> and like I said, if the roster was operating you know at full capacity uh -huh. i feel like it'd be more likely i mean it's a stretch either way but i mean it'd still be a really cool storyline and would add a lot of intrigue you know to both brands mm. i think but with all the politics involved i definitely don't see yeah. that happening at all. that's just <laughs> fantasy booking i'll be interested to see if we get like bullet club involvement you know in this match uh especially since you know jay white's obviously involved um in New Japan, Bullet Club means a lot of outside interference, mm. uh, but that does go against everything AEW, you know, likes to do, uh, especially with their title matches. But who knows? I mean, compromise has to be made at some point. So um, it'll be curious to see, like, what side the Young Bucks take, you know, um, if that does happen. But regardless, I definitely feel like Jay White's walking away champions. I mean, I don't know... Um... I don't remember if Jay White's in one of the brackets for the G1, but if he were to not, yes. okay, if he were to not win the tournament, they could do an Adam Cole versus Jay White match at G1 Climax just to have that extra match on the card. If he were to get a pin over Adam Cole in this one, 
to possibly get vengeance for screwing him over in this match. I could totally see them trying to build up, a, you know, an elite versus Bullet Club scenario um, for a little bit with Jay White. I think more likely if like Adam Cole got the pin on Jay White, that would happen. Like some kind of rematch would happen uh, in New Japan. Um, but otherwise, I don't know if that match would be sexy enough for a New Japan audience. Hmm. Um, but I mean, it, it could lead to eventual rematch at the next forbidden door also. So since, you know, maybe we do have a situation where it's bullet club versus you know, the, uh, undisputedly whatever the hell they're calling themselves nowadays, um, you know, down the line, uh, which I'm sure probably was in the cards when they originally like started to put this, you know, card together, you know, and Omega was healthy. I mean, it's just so sad that Omega can't be involved in this mm-hmm. match and, because, you know, he was probably a big driving force behind the scenes to get this card to make this relationship happen and make this card possible. Very much feels like uh, RVD at the first ECW one night stand show um, underneath the WWE umbrella. So, um, you know, it is what it is. It's unfortunate. But hopefully this card is just the start of a long fortuitous relationship between both companies. Well, all right, with that said, we'll find out if any of our predictions come true when we review it next week. Well, that does it for this week. That's right, and as a friendly reminder, if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform, remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review. Exactly. It sure does help an independent podcast like ours continue to grow. And while you're at it, make sure to tell a friend. Plus, if you like any of the stories we talked about on this week's episode, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to catch the full articles, trailers, memes, and more. That's right. You can follow us at Amazing Nerd Show on all social media platforms. And hey, if you're looking for extra content, make sure to catch our streams every weekend on Twitch, plus YouTube videos Monday through Friday. Want to support the show further? You can head over to tpublic.com and get yourself some amazing Nerd Show merch. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. And if you post what you bought and tag us on social media, we'll send you some additional nerd swag if you live in the United States. Well, all right, David, what are we talking about next week? Well, next week we're going to be reviewing the horror film Black Phone, and we'll also be breaking down episode four of Miss Marvel. Plus, we're going through the Forbidden Door and talking AEW and New Japan Pro Wrestling's massive crossover event. My name's Christian. And my name's David. And that was The Amazing Nerd Show. You must see this droid safely delivered to him on Alderaan. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope.